Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The function, purpose of silent prayer is simply to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, give you an opportunity to pray, settle down, focus, get ready to think and study for the next hour. So we'll bow our heads, have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Father, it is such a tremendous privilege to be together, to have the freedoms that we do, to study your word, to be able to come as frequently as we do to study, to uh, be exposed to the truth of your word, to let God the Holy Spirit take these things and make them profitable for our spiritual growth and spiritual advance. And, Father, we pray that we might not become complacent, that we might not take this uh, for granted uh, because it is so available, and that we might understand what a tremendous and special privilege it is that we have what we have. And Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to focus on these things and be reminded of what the eternal realities are, that we may look at life from your vantage point, not from the vantage point of our circumstances or our emotions, and that we might recognize that we're here to serve you and to glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we were finishing up in 1 Kings 10, which is sort of a summary chapter related to Solomon's whole life and career relating the tremendous ways in which God uh, blessed him. He blessed him in terms of his wisdom. He blessed him in terms of the extent of, his, of the kingdom. God blessed, uh, God blessed Solomon in terms of his, his wealth, in terms of uh, all of his building programs, and just the, built this magnificent kingdom in a time when there was a vacuum of power, and that just didn't happen. Uh, it just didn't happen that Egypt still had not recovered uh, from the uh, exodus. It's been almost uh, 500 years, and Egypt doesn't come back on the scene as a military power again for uh, still another 60 or 70 years after Solomon came to the throne. So there's a vacuum to the south, although they're coming back, there is a vacuum to the east in terms of Babylon and Assyria. There's a, a vacuum to the north in terms of the Hittites. And I don't think it's, it's coincidental. God is the one who works in all of history and in all these kingdoms. And so things worked out the way they did so that God could elevate uh, Solomon. This was just a tremendous illustration and picture to the world of that, God, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the true God. And the blessings that God gave Solomon were also a test for him. And as we closed last time, 
I said that we need to summarize this in terms of understanding the prosperity test because this is one of those tests that most people don't do very well at, and most people fail, and Solomon certainly failed and failed miserably. And we see the opening to this in 1 Kings chapter 11. So go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 11, and here we see the last, enter the last chapter related to Solomon. So the last thing we hear about Solomon, as the narrator gives the story, we've had ten positive chapters, and now in this last chapter we see the problem that occurs and the failure of Solomon at the end of his life, that he's lived so long, and for apparently much of that life, he was very positive and very obedient. But at some point, and we don't know exactly when that was, it wasn't late, late in life, but probably for the first uh, 30 to 40 years, he was on track, and then he began to gradually uh, be influenced, allow himself to be influenced away from the Lord until he became uh, very much, very distant from the Lord and went on just a tremendous search to try to find meaning and happiness in life apart from God. So when we come to ch- chapter 11, the first uh, eight verses summarize what happens. That Starting off, we see that King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them. So he disobeys God, he multiplies wives, he has 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. I've always wondered why somebody with 700 wives would want 300 concubines. Nobody I know can answer that. So, And it is through these wives that he is has his heart turned away from God, and he's not loyal to God, and so God is going to discipline him. And by the time we get down to um, verse 6, we read, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. And the one thing that we're going to note as you go through Kings and you look at this this note of so-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord, Often when we think of evil, we have different ideas and concepts of what comprises evil. We think of the evil of the Nazis during World War II. We think of the evil that comes about as a result of communism. We think of different kinds of evil. But every time you look at these these individual kings, when there's this summary statement that so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord, the evil is always idolatry. It's always defined in terms of the violation of that first commandment that, there's, that the Jews should have no other God besides Yahweh. And that is the starting point of all evil is when man shifts his allegiance from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we shift our attention away from him, that then sets the stage for all, all manner of evil. And this is what happens to Solomon. And he has everything, as we've seen in the past chapters. God has given him everything. He is the wealthiest. He is the wisest. He has the greatest works. But 
he becomes complacent and he fails. And in that, we have some tremendous lessons. So we're going to look at the doctrine of prosperity testing. Doctrine of prosperity testing. Most of the time when we look at testing, we focus on adversity. Adversity is common to many people, and most people have the idea that, Lord, I'm just tired of going through the struggles and the adversity. Just let me try to pass the prosperity test. I just, I know I can do it. And I think the reason that God doesn't give some people the prosperity test is because it wouldn't be a test for them. They would pass it. And I think God specifically designs the circumstances and the situations that we go through because that's what targets the area of weakness in our sin nature. And so we don't go through the kinds of tests we go through just in some random universe, but these are designed by God because that's what's going to test us to trust God. So we have the prosperity test. I remember years ago when I was teaching James and spent a lot of time talking about adversity and prosperity and the ways to handle the various tests using stress busters and I had a close friend of mine who had, now has an extremely successful business. But there was a time some uh, 20 years or so ago when he was barely knew how he would pay the bills for his company at the end of the month, and he'd hire uh, out-of-work preachers like Jim Myers to work for him. And he um, he just... Every day he would listen to a tape going to work and a tape coming home, and often he'd play a tape during the day while he was working. And he said, you just weren't sure how you're going to make it from day to day, so you were just clinging to doctrine. Every single day you just had to be reminded from hour to hour that God was in control. He said, I wish I had those days back because now that I have, I'm so prosperous, it's hard for me to even get a half hour of tape in. I'm distracted by the success of the business, and I'm distracted by the fact that that pressure of needing to rely on the grace of God moment by moment is lost because because of what I have, what God's given me. It, it, it I, I don't feel the pressure to rely on, on God all the time, and it's a much more difficult test than going through anything else that I've ever gone through. And having observed this individual's life for the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, he's gone through a lot because of that prosperity. And it is a completely different kind of testing than when we're going through adversity. So let's look at the first point. In life, God takes us through various circumstances which provide us with opportunities to trust him in life. Now, each of those circumstances is a test. I find that a lot of people don't really understand what a spiritual test is. They think of a test in usually extreme circumstances. It's a test when you are awakened by a phone call at 2 o'clock in the morning and your son or daughter has been uh, in an automobile accident. Uh, they think it is a test when you're having to deal with elderly parents who are going through health problems, uh, going through different challenges, and at the same time, you're also having to uh, get two or three kids through college. Uh, they think it's a test when you lose your job and you have to survive for two or three months or longer, and you go to job interview after job interview after job interview, and 
nothing appeared. They think that's what a test is. Those are some of the big adversities that we face, but that's not exactly what a test is. And so I want to uh, define very carefully as we go through this exactly what we mean by a test. So God takes us through various circumstances which provide us with opportunities to trust him, and that's going to be the bottom line for understanding a, a, a a, a test. Now, when these are harsh circumstances, we describe this as adversity. When they're pleasant circumstances, we describe it as a prosperity test. So there are two different kinds of testing. Now, this is point one, and under point one, I'm going to cover five lengthy subpoints. Okay? So we're going to number those 1A through E. Just to make sure we understand what I'm talking about when we talk about God taking us through various circumstances which give us the opportunity to trust Him, to apply doctrine. That's what trusting is. That's why when you get into the book of James, And the theme of the whole book of James is endurance or perseverance under testing. Whatever those circumstances are, hanging in there with the application of the Word of God, when it gets tiresome, when when you can become complacent, it's not letting down your guard, it's sticking with it all the way through, through the test. And when you get to the first section of James, he introduces it by saying that uh, we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And those three things are the that really give you the structure of the epistle to James. And the first thing he talks about is being not only a hearer, but a doer. And the doing doesn't mean Christian service. Doing means applying what you've listened to. That we need to make a priority out of learning the Word of God, listening to the Word of God, listening to what God says, the instructions that we get from Scripture, and then putting that into practice. remember years ago sitting in Bible class one night, and a friend of mine, who I normally never sat with, sat next to me, and every time that she wrote down a principle, she converted it to a first-person sentence. I need to do this. I thought, wow, I can't do that. It's too convicting. <laughs> but that is, that's a great way to take notes because it takes what is, what is usually presented as a third person principle and converts it to the, to the fact that this is something I need to put into practice. So we look at te- tests, and this is the first point, 1A. What is a test? A test is any situation that calls for us to make a decision where the options involve either depending on God and the spiritual resources he has provided or depending on our own resources. That's a test. And that that test can come when you're standing in line at the grocery store and the person in front of you doesn't quite have their act together and you're in a hurry and you now have the option whether you're going to relax and trust God or get impatient. Uh, that can apply to going down the freeway and you're in a hurry and somebody gets in front of you and they never knew the word hurry. So there's all kinds of different ways in which we have these various tests. Getting up in the morning and you didn't sleep well the night before or you're, you stayed up a little later than you should have or you just wake up in the morning 
and you're just kind of grumpy. I know that probably doesn't happen to anyone here, but we all know somebody like that. And you wake up in the morning, and, and now you've got a test of your own of your own emotional state and say, well, am I going to let this dictate how I respond to things today? So that's a test that comes that, that's really tough because uh, most of us don't quite want to handle that, especially before we've had two cups of coffee. But we have those different kinds of tests, and it's always related to, you know, not the, what are the neutral test is whether you're going to get up and put on a, a blue shirt or a red shirt or a blue blouse or a red blouse or whatever it is. It's the tests that always call for some sort of application of doctrine. Am I going to put into practice what I've been learning in Bible class, or am I going to try to solve this through uh, resentment, bitterness, anger for mental attitude sins? Am I going to uh, try to solve this through some other overt action that's a sin, gossip or slander, which are sins of the tongue? But... It comes down to these kinds of options. How am I going to respond or react in certain circumstances? And they can just be, you know, the hardest things for us are just the everyday situations of life. When we're in the grocery store, we're at the hardware store, you're at work, or you're having to deal with a coworker who uh, just doesn't quite click with you, and so you get a little irritated with them or whatever it is. These are the kinds of tests that we run into 50 times every day. They're not the really big tests we think of, but they're the opportunities we have again and again and again to apply doctrine. So a test is any situation that calls for us to make a decision where the options involve either depending on God and applying the word and utilizing the resources that he's given us or handling it on our own resources. Point 1B is that whenever we are dependent on God, that's called trust. That's what faith is. Faith is relying upon God, taking his word, taking a promise, taking a principle as true, and saying, even though I don't feel like doing this, even though it makes me uncomfortable, even though I really don't like that person, but I know I have to deal with them in love and I have to handle the situation in patience, I'm going to do that because that's what God says to do. And using trust and applying a promise, a principle, our provision from God in a situation is what we refer to as a faith rest drill. And we call it that because it is enacted by faith, that trusting in what God has said to do, that in these circumstances, in these situations, you have to do X. And so we have all of these mandates in Scripture that give us the protocols for living the Christian life. And they give all the standards for living the Christian life as members of God's royal family. And when we put that into practice, then we can relax in the situation, whether it's a big situation or bad, or a small situation, a bad situation, whatever it is. You can just relax and trust God because you know that you're doing the, you're handling the situation according to biblical standards, principles like we have in First Peter five, six, and seven. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. By casting, see, the, the, the par, uh, participle there, casting, is actually a participle of means. The command is to humble yourself. So how do you humble yourself? Do you just humble yourself by saying, okay, I'm going to be humble today. 
I'm not going to talk about myself. I'm not going to talk about, uh, emphasize what I've accomplished. I'm not going to uh, let arrogance get in control. How do we humble ourselves? Well, in the context here, you humble yourself by casting all your anxiety on him. See, the opposite of humbling yourself is being arrogant and thinking you can handle your worries, your concerns, your anxieties yourself. And so the contrast is don't be arrogant. And earlier in the passage, it talks about the fact that uh, there are those who are arrogant and God makes war against the arrogant. God is opposed to the arrogant. But humble yourselves by casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So that is how we exercise humility. And the, the arrogance in context is an arrogance thinking that we can handle these problems on our own without depending upon him. So we need to trust God and trust his word and put it into practice. Under 1C, we need to recognize that whenever we rely on something else to resolve the test, that is a form of idolatry. Whenever you're relying upon something else, when you're relying on your emotions to handle the situation, you're in emotional idolatry. When you are relying upon uh, some other kind of gimmick, and you have all kinds of gimmicks today that come out of all kinds of, of different religious systems, then that's another form of idolatry. When you rely on uh, secular psychology to handle your problems, then uh, that's a form of idolatry. Not that I'm promoting, and I'm going to make another principle here, not that I'm promoting this, but I'm, I was appalled. There was a period of time about maybe eight or nine years ago, and I discovered just all at the same time, like within a week, about eight or nine believers that I knew that were all taking Zoloft or Prozac or something like that for handling some sort of depression. And these were people who were allegedly mature believers. And I found out about this one individual, this one woman, and she said, you know, I could, after I got on Prozac, I could really see the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Now, there are people who do need to be on certain medications for certain things, but we live in an over-medicated society, and there are too many people who have gotten themselves into emotional instabilities and they are put by doctors who too readily prescribe drugs, and they've gotten into these situations because they have had a bad habit of not applying doctrine over a lengthy period of time. And that's why, and then they end up saying, well, doctrine doesn't work. And the reason doctrine doesn't work is you've never really tried it. You just thought you did. And I've run into that problem many times where, and I, I'll see that, not so much in a counseling situation, but I've just seen that when people I know and friends I know. And you say, well, they just never really have truly applied any doctrine. They've just sort of gone through certain motions and think they have. They've got 15 doctrinal notebooks up on the bookshelf and think that they've reached some level of spiritual maturity, but there's no real ongoing practice and application in their life. And they've never even started with baby steps. They're still trying to stand up and they keep falling down. And so they try some illegitimate crutch in order to make it. So whenever we're relying on anything else, and see, people rely on all kinds of things to find happiness and stability in life. 
They look to all, all kinds of things in details of life, and often we, we sort of kid ourselves into thinking that we're really trusting in God, but we're glad we have all that money in our 401k. See, there's, there's, it's like there's a backup plan somewhere that somehow, uh, if God doesn't really work out, I've got a, I've got a backup plan, so I'm trusting God and something else. And that's just the other forms of idolatries. Whenever we're looking to anything other than God to provide the sustenance, the stability, the happiness, the meaning in life, that's idolatry. Uh, 1D, idolatry in the Old Testament. This is the, the whole concept of idolatry is one that we have to understand here. Idolatry in the Old Testament is built around pantheons of gods. It is a more overt form of idolatry. You have all of these various gods, but the gods are associated with some detail in life. It's an agrarian society, so you have a god, you have a weather god who's going to provide rain and is going to provide all the things that are needed for fertility of the crops. You have another a goddess of love and usually a god associated with love. You have gods and goddesses associated with production, with war, with all the different things that people in that culture were faced with uh, at a different time, uh, different problems in their life. So at different times, they would face different things, so they would have a different god for different situations. And they were more concrete about their observance of this kind of idolatry. But when you get into the New Testament, there's a recognition that uh, idolatry is not just this overt worship of, of idols made out of stones and metal and wood, idols that sometimes were in the shape of uh, animals, sometimes a, a kind of a hybrid mix of man and animal. But the New Testament makes it clear that idolatry is mental, not necessarily overt. And there are many people who think, well, what do you mean idolatry? I don't go home. I don't have a little Buddha at home that I light incense in front of. And, and uh, I, I'm not like the, uh, some of the Eastern Orthodox churches where you go in and you, you put flowers all around the icons. I'm not like a, a Buddhist or Hindu where we have uh, 2,000 different uh, gods and goddesses this year and another 2,000 next year. I'm not into that kind of a thing. But the New Testament clearly defines idolatry as, as mental. Colossians 3.5, we read, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Greed is a form of idolatry. Materialism lust is a form of idolatry. It's the worship of money or the things that money can buy. It's the worship of uh, possessions. It's the worship of, of uh, any, any material thing that you think makes life worthwhile and that this is what provides security and meaning and purpose for your life rather than looking to God. So the New Testament makes it clear that idolatry is mental. And it goes beyond this when we get into Romans 1, 19 and 20. Romans 1, 19 talks about the fact that everybody knows that God exists. Believer, unbeliever, atheist, whoever they are, everybody knows God exists because that which is known about God is evident within them. The external creation, the context, 
gives enough evidence to hold everybody accountable. So that they, everybody knows God exists. God makes it clear to them. For, verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Very clear. For every human being, there is a clear enough witness, nonverbal witness, in what is what we call general revelation, just in the creation. This is what lies behind the whole uh, uh, intelligent design argument that as you look and examine and study creation, the evidence of a designer, the evidence of the intricacy that there tells us something about the creator. If you go out on a desert island, you get shipwrecked, and you end up on a desert island somewhere, and you're stumbling around in the, in the undergrowth, and suddenly you come upon a clearing, and you see a Ferrari sitting there, you know right away that it didn't just happen, that it just didn't pop up out of thin air, that somebody didn't just shake something and it just happened to be there by chance. You know, if it's there, that somebody put it there, somebody built it, somebody designed it. It is self-evident. But what this passage tells us is that the unbeliever who rejects this witness of God is dead set against recognizing that, and he is going to do everything in his power to stuff that down into some little garbage disposal in his soul to try to get rid of it. But every time he looks at anything in creation, it's got a made-by-God tag on it, invisible, but he sees it. And that irritates him. So he's got this level of ongoing irritation happening. And then the next thing that happens is this individual is going to be sitting next to you at work and find out that you're a Christian and you think that there are absolute things that are absolutely right and absolutely wrong. You may never even talk about his particular favorite sin, but he knows you're against it and he is so angry because you're sitting next to him and he knows you believe it's wrong, that he just beside himself with, with anger and bitterness. And see, we live in a world today where that is happening. You just watch the news, and you watch many different groups that are out there. You watch that the, the, the uh, uh, film on uh, intelligent design, on Expel, that Ben Stein did. And you look at that, and you just see the bitterness and the anger and the resentment, the very fact that somebody's going to come along and teach that possibly, maybe, the fact that, these, that, that creation is orderly indicates that, that some kind of deity must exist just sets these people off. They, they, they just, and there's, there are even evolutionary scientists who want to outlaw Christianity. They just want to get us out of their vision. Because our very presence angers them. And that's the picture we see here in uh, Romans one twenty one. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile. Now, that's a really interesting word there. I want you to remember this. It's this, the same word we're going to run into later on that has to do with vanity and emptiness uh, uh, the, the Greek word matayotes, they become futile or empty in their speculation. I believe that's the word there. And their foolish heart was darkened. So you have this same imagery here that we're going to pick up later on 
in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Their heart is darkened. Um, they're futile in their speculations. Their mind is empty. They're brilliant. They have 180 IQ, a 210 IQ. They are well-educated. They have three PhDs, one in pharmacology, one in biochemistry, and one in physics. And they can, they can out-argue, out-debate anybody. But God says that their, their heart is foolish, it's dark, and all they're doing is speculating. And verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. So we get impressed with a person who's got all the letters after their name and all of the education and the high IQ and all the accomplishments, and we think they're smart. And at one level they are. They have learned, they've accumulated a lot of knowledge. But God's comment on them, because God's not politically correct, is that they're a fool. And see, if we mention that, we run the risk of really alienating them because we live in a world today where people are so hypersensitive and people are so get so upset that if anybody says something that is contrary to the way they think the world should be, uh, they want to claim that to be a hate speech because everybody has the right to feel very comfortable in whatever their behavior is. Isn't that right? And nobody, should, if, if you come along and you believe something like Christianity, then you make me feel uncomfortable. So well, we can't allow you to have anything to to come, even come near me because that makes me feel uncomfortable because you believe that what I'm doing is wrong. So professing to be wise, they became fools. And foolishness is identified here in the same way it is in the Old Testament that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. He, he, it's not that fools say there's no God. It's that what makes them a fool is that they deny the existence of God. And this happens to a lot of Christians. Christians who have bought into any form of Darwinism, Christians who bought into moral relativism, Christians that are going into the emergent church kind of pseudo-Christianity, Christians that have gotten involved in the big mega churches that have uh, pastors that preach motivational sermons and don't teach the Word of God and don't take stands on clear doctrinal issues, don't talk about sin, don't talk about salvation, don't talk about a substitutionary atonement. These are Christians that are functional atheists. And when they go to church on Sunday morning, and then they go to their job the rest of the week, and whatever Christianity believes is not doesn't impact their life, then they're a functional atheist, and they are a fool because in their heart they're acting as if God doesn't exist. And that's what James gets at when he talks about uh, James 2.14 and following. He says if someone says uh, uh, that they have, they have faith without works, can that faith save him? Does that faith do him any good? If someone has, has faith and no works, is there any value to that? No. That the, the doctrine, whatever doctrine they claim they know, doesn't have any impact on any other area of their life. It's just an intellectual exercise, someone who's listening but not applying. And so even though Romans one twenty one is talking about unbelievers, you have many, many believers who can function 
as unbelievers. And we all know people like this. They just don't want to do what God says to do. They may be saved and they're going to go to heaven, but they're living in rebellion to God. So they are professing to be wise, to have all the answers, to know the truth. They become fools. And then we get to verse 23, and they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So the essence of idolatry is that at a point in time, rather than looking to God as the source and solution for the problems of life and for the uh, prosperity in life to handle any situation in life, we're thinking we can handle it on our own. And at the instant that you start thinking you can handle problems in life on your own, at that instant, you become a functional atheist because you're saying in your heart that, well, I don't have to pay attention to the truth of God's word. I'm going to quit walking by the Spirit. I'm going to quit applying doctrine, and I'm just going to let my sin nature solve the problem because those are the only two options, Galatians 5:17 through 19. We either walk by the Spirit or we're walking according to the flesh, that is the sin nature. And the spirit wars against the flesh, and the flesh wars against the spirit. So there's no neutral position. Now, we try to rationalize and justify what we do, and that there is some kind of uh, neutral position. We lie to ourselves because the first thing that happens in arrogance is self-deception. And we try to lie to ourselves and create a scenario that it really doesn't, uh, doesn't matter. But what we're doing is we make that shift, and we start at the very least, worshiping ourselves, We put ourselves in the place of God and replace his standards with our own uh, carnal standards, and that is idolatry. Whenever we start worshiping any facet of the creation or looking to anything in creation to supply what only the creator can supply, that is idolatry. And that's the, it, once you take God out of the picture and say, I'm not going to listen to God or God isn't there, then the only solution is to deify something within creation, to look to something within creation as the ultimate source of meaning or happiness or value in life. So we come to a definition of idolatry, that idolatry occurs when man seeks from something in creation that which only the Creator can provide. You're looking for happiness from success. You're looking for stability from uh, having enough money in the bank. You're looking to uh, meaning in life and joy in life just by virtue of having the right kind of job or having the right status symbols. And there's all kinds of status symbols. If you're a farmer in Missouri... You got all, you got your own set of status symbols. You got to have the latest John Deere tractor, or you got to whatever it is. But everybody's got from every walk of life, based on who your peers are. There's always certain things that set you apart as as cool or successful or uh, having arrived. And if you have that, then then that's what makes life worth living. And whenever people do that, they're substituting those details of life for God. And that's the essence of idolatry. So when man seeks from something in creation that which only the Creator can provide, 
That's idolatry. This may take the form of worshiping representations of stone, wood, or metal, or it may involve a more abstract orientation of the mind. And there's all kinds of things that can be, things that are very good that can, five minutes later, be converted into idolatry. You can enjoy a house, a car, you can enjoy your clothes, or whatever it is, your job, your career, your success. And when you're walking by the Spirit, it's in the right perspective, it's in the right place in your thinking, and you understand where ultimate values and realities are. And then all of a sudden you get out of fellowship and you start trying to solve problems, and now whatever that was has become idolatrous. And it's the same thing, but it's your mental attitude that makes the difference. So all of that is to cover the first point. Now, idolatry was one of the major problems in the Old Testament. I think that so many of the things that we see in the Old Testament, when we look at the Mosaic Law and we look at all of the different object lessons that are there and the types and the physical representations and foreshadowings related to the person and work of Christ, related to sin, related to so many different things, that we also see these concrete uh, representations of idolatry because when you get a little further into the history of man, you realize that those overt representations uh, were preceded by the more uh, subtle, covert, mental, uh, abstract forms of idolatry. So idolatry comes along whenever man seeks happiness from anything in creation, the details of life, and we can think of all kinds of different details of life from from success to job, career, clothes, house, car, status symbols, friends, family, all these various things can become our source for meaning and happiness in life. And when you get, when I get involved sometimes in counseling situations, and I've been involved in a few over the years, ultimately what you find at the very source of somebody who's really having problems is they are trying to find, they have gotten some idea that just entrenched in their thinking that happiness or meaning or stability comes from X, and I don't have X, so I'm miserable. And the more that that gets ingrained in their thinking, and sometimes they manage to camouflage that because at some level they may know it's wrong, and that anybody who thought that they actually thought that way or realized that they thought that way would think they were, they were an idiot. So they cover it up with all kinds of camouflage. And they deceive themselves. And um, sometimes it takes a while for people to be honest with themselves. That's that whole picture that you have in, in James, that a man who looks in the mirror doesn't just go away and not fix whatever he sees that might be wrong. And when you look in the mirror of the Word of God and you walk away from it, that's the hearer who doesn't have any application. And there's just a lot of people that do that. And several years ago, I developed a doctrine. I wasn't thinking about this afternoon. I don't know if I can pull all the points off the top of my head. But I developed a doctrine I call the vampire Christian. Now, if you've never done any counseling with anybody or you've never been a pastor, then you don't have a clue. But you've met vampire Christians. Most of you know at least one. Now, the first characteristic of a vampire is what? He sucks blood. Okay, the first characteristic of a vampire is he is he sucks, but he gets nourishment from a victim. 
And so you have vampire Christians who come along. What they're going to do is latch onto you, and they're just going to suck all the approbation and attention and everything from you. And next thing you know, you know they're calling you all the time, and they're always uh, whining about whatever went on. And, of course, they've got great stories. And, and I went to a church 20 years ago, and I was, st- I was a little bit of an experienced pastor, but I had moved up to Dallas, and I was going to go into the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary. And just right when I was about to move up there, this church in Irving, Texas, called me. And they were looking for a pastor. And I thought, well, that's great. I'm moving to Irving next week, so it's got to be God's will, God's provision. Well, it was. Just because things don't go well at times doesn't mean it's not God's provision. Well, this church had been started about five years earlier, and it was started by, it turned out, a group of about three or four men who I found out sometime later were basically in authority rebellion against the leadership at a larger uh, Bible church that had been in Irving for a number of years. And so that was part of the problem. The other part of the problem was two of the three men were Christian counselors. And so they started the church with a whole bunch of needy people who were coming to them for counseling. And so there were about, and I don't mean to offend any particular uh, genders, but there were about eight women, and they all had the same pattern. They had all been divorced, lost jobs, had rebellious kids, had no money, and whined about everything that were in this congregation. And they expected the pastor to be able to solve all their problems. It took about a year and a half to get rid of all of them. Not in the sense that I was getting rid of them, but just in terms of teaching the truth. They didn't want to hear the truth. They they wanted somebody who was going to, was going to give them a lot of attention and and was going to say, oh, how terrible life's been to you and you're just the victim. And they were just, all eight of them were just the picture, you know, they were the poster child for victimhood. And and it was just terrible because the previous pastor didn't have a philosophy of teaching. And so they hadn't, nobody had ever learned any doctrine or that God could solve all their problems. And they just needed to learn the word of God and trust him. And the more I emphasize that, the less they wanted to uh, learn the Word of God. And these are all forms of idolatry, and we live in a world today when often what happens in our culture is that people are are allowed to worship themselves uh, because of the, the problems that they've had and because things haven't gone right, and they're, they're, we've made an idol out of victimhood, and so people become very self-absorbed and they began to deify their own emotions. And if you notice, if you know anything about counseling, and it's 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 almost a uh, it's almost a caricature. But the first thing that happens when you go in and you talk to somebody in counseling is say, "Well, how do you feel?" And and that, that how, the emotions are never really confronted as okay. We all have wrong emotions. Let's get past our emotions and let's talk about how we're supposed to live in terms of a correct mental attitude and understanding uh, reality and truth and not pander and cater 
to people who are just involved in a lot of self-pity, and that's what they want to do, basically, is wallow in self-pity. Now, that's not true about everybody that goes to counseling and has problems, but that certainly is true of a, of a large segment. They're just different forms of, of idolatry. Well, God had warned Israel about the danger of idolatry. Because in idolatry, we think that somehow we can handle or face the problems in life without depending exclusively on God. And that's the principle you see over and over again in Scripture. We have to trust in the Lord with all our heart. This is a radical dependence upon God. It's not saying, okay, I'm going to go through the motions of trusting God. I'll memorize it maybe a promise or two, and I'll claim that promise, but let's see, I'm, I'm going to have a whole card somewhere just in case this doctrine thing doesn't work. Because who knows, I may trust God and do what he says, and circumstances may get worse. And, of course, we think that couldn't be God's will because we've got a fallacious view of the will of God that that means that, every, that when we apply the word, everything's going to go the way we want it to go like some God, some magic genie, and if we just rub our Bible three times, he'll pop out and answer the prayer just the way we want. But that's not what biblical Christianity is all about. God is taking us through these tests, whether it's adversity or prosperity, in order to teach us to be dependent upon him and to show that when we're not, uh, it can just fall apart and collapse in a hurry. So in Joshua... Chapter 24, there is a warning to Israel about what would happen in relationship to idolatry. And this is from Joshua 24, verses 23 to 27. When Joshua is giving them his parting instructions before he's going to die. And he says in verse 23, Now therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And that word incline means to stretch out. And it's just the opposite of what happens with Solomon. And we read in uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, For it was so when Solomon was old that his, wife, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of the, his father David. Now, what does it mean by heart? What it means by heart, the word heart has to do with the center of something. And never in the Bible does the word heart ever refer to the physical organ that's in your chest. It always has this uh, figurative meaning, and we use it this way all the time. We talk about the heart of a matter. You go to the grocery store, you buy hearts of palms. It has to do with the center, what's at the very core of something. And so sometimes heart is just a synonym for the soul itself. Other times, and the majority of times, it has to do with the thinking part of the soul. There's a few times when it has more of a volitional element. There's a few times when it has a little more of an emotional element. But all of those are the basic components of the soul. So what what Joshua is saying to them is that they need to stretch out their heart. Their whole inner being needs to be focused on God. We would say They need to exercise positive volition towards God and shift it into high gear. They need to stretch out their heart to the Lord God of Israel. And and the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve. I think this is an emotional response, especially when you realize what's happening very quickly after this and, and is described in the book of Judges. They are 
motivated by Joshua. They're excited. They're, it's, it, they under all this victory that they've had and they're just pumped up and they make this empty claim that they will serve God. In verse 25, Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. He made them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. He took a lar- large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So he is going to set a, a this rock up that is going to be a historical testimony to the claim that they made that they would always serve the Lord. And when a few years would go by a decade or two and they weren't worshiping the Lord, that stone would stand as a silent testimony of their failure. And they and, and this was a prediction of exactly what would happen, uh, the judgment that would come because of their idolatry. Deuteronomy 32. God says, They've provoked me to, um, uh, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. See, when we violate the, the first commandment, and that principle may, is, it continues into the church age, not the Mosaic law itself, but the principle, you shall have no other gods before me, that we can't work, there's no other god to worship. And what God is saying to the Israelites, based on the first commandment, is that when they worship other things, it provokes him to jealousy. Now, those of you who were here a few weeks ago when we saw that, um, YouTube video and this thing with Oprah saying that she'd gone to a church and and heard that God was a jealous God. Uh, she said, well, it must not be much of a God. Uh, he gets jealous. I don't need to worship somebody who's going to get jealous. That's not much of a God. Well, this is a an anthropopathism that's designed to teach us that God wants exclusive obedience. God, God is not involved in sin. He isn't jealous in the sense of sinful jealousy, but he is a God who expects complete and total, complete and total adoration, complete and total allegiance, and not to be spreading our allegiance around to other gods. So, Deuteronomy 32:21, God says, "They have moved me to anger, judgment, justice." by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. In other words, divine discipline. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled by my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. God is going to bring judgment as a result of idolatry. This is exactly what happens to Solomon. When Solomon turns his heart away from the Lord and he gets involved in idolatry, doing evil in the sight of the Lord and building a high place for these various gods and goddesses that we're going to study in this section. Then in verse 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. He has the empirical evidence. How many people you ever talked to said, well, you know, maybe I believe in God if I could see him. Well, we got all kinds of people in Scripture who saw God. 
saw the Lord Jesus Christ, witnesses to the resurrection, didn't believe a thing. Saw Jesus give the blind man sight, saw him turn the water into wine, saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, didn't believe him. See, miracles aren't designed to convince people that, uh, so that they will believe. Miracles are designed to give evidence that God is who he claims to be. But because of negative volition, the negative volition that you see in Romans 1, these are people that have all the evidence they need to trust in God. Madeline Murray O'Hare had all the evidence she needed to trust in God and to know God exists. She knew in her heart of hearts that God existed. But she was stuffing it. She was suppressing it in unrighteousness. And that is exactly the mode of every person on negative volition. They're trying to stuff God uh, out of their life. So we come now to our second principle. That's just point one. That was the long one. The other ones don't have all those subpoints. Point two is that in prosperity, God it provides us with an abundance of the details of life. See, all those other points were just to help us understand what a test is and that what the alternatives are. Point two focuses on the real issue. In prosperity, God provides us with an abundance of the details of life. This can be friends, family, success and careers, uh, money, material possession, respect by your peers or our home life, anything, whatever it can be. And see, there's one person over on this side of the room, and money doesn't mean that much to him, but family is everything. And there's somebody over on this side of the room, and they don't care about family, but, boy, they've got to have the right car and the right clothes and the right house and all of that. And everybody's different. And what is a significant status symbol or significant detail of life for one person, what is their definition of prosperity, is not the next person's definition of prosperity. But when we get in that situation in life where we feel comfortable, secure, and that everything is going great, that is the prosperity test. And you may be not living in the same kind of house somebody else would want or driving the same kind of car, but for you, that is your prosperity test. And Solomon had the prosperity test of all prosperity tests, and we'll come back and continue this study next time when we get into point number three. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to realize that It's so easy for us to slip away from becoming dependent upon you moment by moment, day by day, for everything in life, realizing that the details of our lives are nothing more than just details. The real issue in life is our moment by moment application of doctrine, our spiritual growth, our testimony to the angels and to those around us of the sufficiency of your word and the sufficiency of your grace. Challenge us with the things we studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.